Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Ascension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's podcast. We are again off the mat, and let me begin by apologizing for the unexpected break in episodes. As many of you know, I am a law enforcement officer for a Southern California agency, and those familiar with the job know that there's no real schedule. And sometimes, well, often, if not always, one's life has to be moved around according to oath and office. I am sincere in my apology because I realize that many people use these podcasts as well as our YouTube channel and our Facebook page to either further develop or even deepen their own practice. In the interim, I did try to keep up on the Facebook and YouTube pages so that there was always some sort of video analysis that they could use or some sort of textual pointer that they could use. I realize that those don't cover everything, and hence why I even started the podcast. Um, the podcast offers us a kind of long duration in thinking. Um, we can go deeper and broader at the same time to look at how we're thinking about the art, ourselves, our practice. But out of the three, because it is so easy for us as moderns to reduce our art to what is essentially surface levels, to reduce it to our intellect, to our thinking, toward toward our academic leanings. I kind of prioritize the video analysis. Deep down in me, there's always a preference for movement and action over stillness and thought. And that comes out in how I prioritize what I am able to do with the limited time I have. I suggest the same for everyone. Then within me, and I often repeat it to anybody who has taken the time to contact me, whether with questions or with just thanks for the work out there, um, out of all these options, the best thing to do is just come join us on the mat. Our dojo does not have a mat fee, um, 
And service is one of the training aspects that we include. So you wouldn't be putting us out at all, and you are very, very welcome to come. And we see your arrival uh, as part of our own continuing training. Um, I hope you can all take advantage of that at least one time, if not on a regular basis. So that is always there. If I'm ever too silent and or the drive in you to learn more reaches an apex where that silence has become too problematic, please always feel welcome to join us. Uh, that is going to be our best option. And I hope you take advantage of it. Relatedly, up to now, I've kind of been giving you the historical context by which to understand some of the uniqueness of O-sensei, in particular, understanding O-sensei's mysticism and mysticism in general from the history of religion's point of view. Along the way, I have tried to point out how difficult this must be or may be for us moderns because we no longer think with or by the same episteme. And also because there are trends in our own history uh, that are the results of specific political slash power struggles wherein academics in general and post-enlightenment prioritization of the intellect in conjunction has led what was in the past very key aspects of who we are as human beings and what is the meaning and purpose of life and how does one navigate it in order to stay well. Um, those aspects are now dismissed as either irrelevant or worse, a gateway to ignorance and insanity. An example of this is when mysticism is thought of as a dirty word or dismissed with some kind of colloquial phrase such as woo-woo. The difficulty there is it is O-sensei's mysticism and his mysticism alone that makes him unique in martial history. As with any mystic, it is that mystical experience and that mystical experience alone that has these people remembered beyond their living days. But there is another downside to this. It's kind of a reaction to what I just mentioned. And that is that the mystical experience is not made woo-woo, but almost the opposite. It is accepted, it is valued, but 
it is described and delineated by people who themselves do not have that experience. And as a result, the teachings that accompany those experiences are made material They are brought from the internal aspects of our humanity, our deepest aspects of our psyche, of our emotional selves, and of course of our spiritual selves, and are brought to the surface in material ways. There's two parts to this. One, this is just a sociological evolution of the mystical experience. It's one that has happened throughout time. I've talked about it in earlier podcasts in my own scholarship. I've equated it to the rise of the priestly class and the academic class. That in every movement that began at the mystical or the experiential level as it moves beyond or if it moves beyond that one person it comes to be shared by people who do not share the core experience in order to remain a movement or to become a movement it is a default process that happens this development of a priestly class, and I'm using that term as a kind of umbrella term, it, it is describing the formation of a personnel that specializes in the production of dogma and doctrine. and the eventual prioritization of dogma and doctrine over and above the experience that the mystic had. Already there's been a great loss in the movement because that experience is always over and above any kind of dogma and doctrine because it is always an experience that involves the reconciliation of the subject-object dichotomy. Yet dogma and doctrine requires it. So in many ways, dogma and doctrine is a subversion of the experience. Once you have this priestly class, the production of dogma and doctrine, dog, dogma and doctrine, and the prioritization of dogma and doctrine over and above the mystical experience, plus the subversion of the experience going unsaid and unnoticed, eventually you get the production of what I call meta-discourses. These are discourses on the dogma on doctrine, and they're answering or trying to solve what comes up to be contradictions, 
or inconsistencies or logic problems or language games. And eventually a whole new class of people come into existence. This is what I'm calling an academic class. These are people who specialize in the meta-discourses. At the beginning of the academic class formation, you will see a kind of uplifting of the dogma and doctrine. But eventually, because those dogmas and doctrines were ultimately inconsistent with the experience, they contain within them inconsistency. Their very nature is made up of contradiction and inconsistency. And as they develop into meta-discourses that are eventually challenged by things like logic and reason, these inconsistencies and contradictions become problematic and you eventually see a lowering in the status of dogma and doctrine. So the academic class formation is almost the beginning of the end of the movement that came from that one internal mystical realization. So no longer a scholar, I don't, as I always say, I'm not inclined to do this for Aikido. Uh, if you are a historian and you want to tackle the history of Aikido, you're going to have to do this. What I find is that most so-called historians ignore this natural sociological process in the formation of discourse, and they either buy what the academics are selling, buy what the priestly class is selling or by whatever the mystic said or what they think the mystic said. There's no context given under which these practices are being produced, under which they're struggling against each other. For me as a practitioner and for you, the listener, as a practitioner... We just need to understand this in order to free ourselves from the rhetoric and the polemics that come to us without saying and almost seem self-evident because of the long history already established by academic and priestly groups. In, the, in Foucault's sense, this kind of archaeology is liberating. Because one of the worst things we can do is to just start training without this effort in self-reflectiveness, 
what view are we bringing as moderns to this pre-modern technology of the self? And what view is my instructor and her lineage bringing to me? The second thing that happens to the mystic's experience is related to our modern culture, which is the development of that earlier described process and has come to believe that it is an evolved culture, evolved in the sense of progress, advancement, and betterment. And in many ways, without not only this self-reflective archaeology, it is just assumed that things of the past are lesser. They're not just different. They're less. They're worse. I often think of the front soft breakfall. If you read our Facebook page, I'm very critical of it. From a historical point of view or from a historian's point of view, it is very interesting that the fall did not appear in any earlier videos, either by those Bio Sensei where he was Naga or other Naga at that time. In the minds of many practitioners that practice it, obviously related to the fact that most Aikido practitioners have no arena and by extension no interest in the martial application of their Aikido Waza. The front breakfall, that front soft feather landing breakfall, is done today because somebody figured out how to do it. There was an advancement in, in ukemi technology. And that belief is automatically presented to oneself and by oneself to others in the hook, line, and sinker swallowing of evolution. As moderns, it gains within it a kind of scientific legitimacy because evolution, as most of us know it, today comes to us through Darwin's theory, which is science. 
which is contrasted with creationism, which is not science. And these things all spin together to come out with but one conclusion. Religion and religious ideas are less evolved ideas. Scientific reasoning and rationale is an evolution of thought, an advancement of thought, and by default a rejection of lesser ways of being. If you dig deeper, of course, as other scholars have said, that particular soci sociological conclusion or is a political conclusion. Sticking with Darwin, for example, I think even a general person understands the concept of natural selection. The idea that random mutation is selected for or against by the environment in which the mutation is present. In many ways, this is very similar to even pre-modern East Asian way of thinking. But here's the difference. Those pre-modern East Asian ways of thinking saw not a linear evolution in that model in that there was a relationship between a thing and its context. That there was an inter interdependency or a codependency at all times. What they concluded was that reality was cyclical. But what Darwin and eventually popular Darwinism has concluded is that somehow from random mutation to environmental selection, you end up with a linear progression, an evolution, an advancement. There's many reasons why the theory of evolution remains a theory and why many scholars today inside the realm of biology are quite critical of the theory. But just as a logician, one should be able to figure out that the East Asians had it right. that the theory of natural selection only denotes a codependency or an interdependency, but not an advancement, unless one assumes 
that the environment itself is advancing. It is more likely the case, and hopefully historians of science will tackle this, that the concept of evolution actually preceded Darwin's thinking and it came to influence, came to influence his theory. That in all likelihood, colonial politics already had a notion of it. And it may not be the case that Darwin's theory was eventually adopted by political systems, but actually was produced by political systems. And that Darwin just tra transposed that onto his model in his observation of nature. But you fast forward several decades and now within us moderns is a notion of evolution. And so the front feather landing breakfall is an evolution in Ukemi. We are doing something that those early 20th century people didn't know could be done. Well, in my field and in my art, martial viability is very much an important point of training. So even when I look at Kihonwaza, and even though there are many other reasons for Kihonwaza outside of martial viability, and even though those other reasons are often greater reasons than martial viability, the tactical validity and the strategic soundness of Kihonwaza is still very important to me. And I'm very critical not of the fall itself, but of the setup affording to Uke the capacity to cease forward progress and to make a shorter radius circle inside of my own circle. That kind of geometry cancels out the necessary angles of cancellation on the cross-lateral side of the body of Uke. And this means two things. One, I don't have control of Uke's body. Uke does. And two, with that control, weapons and attacks from the cross-lateral side of Uke are now available.
what you see in pre-modern Aikido or pre-feather landing front breakfall is Kihonwaza architectures where Uke was not allowed to stop. The movements, the design, the timings all kept Uke moving in such a manner that the making of a shorter radius circle inside of Naga's spiral movements was made impossible. The inertia and the momentum of Uke center of gravity was led or manipulated or guided or held to in such a way that it could not stop and spin in place. So even following a correct understanding of Darwin's own theory, this breakfall is not an evolution per se as much as it is a context or a contextual allowance. Two things aside from this application of geometry, kinesiology, and biomechanics support my own ideas for me on this. One, in Jiuwaza, where I'm not interested in a particular technique, here the context is what the context is, and my technique matches the context. In Jiuwaza, Uke is often allowed to do, and actually should do, whatever they want to do. In Kihonwaza, there is a prescribed initial print, a prescribed initial energy print. With it comes a certain vector and a certain degree of penetration. But in Jiubaza, for example, those two things, among other things, are decided upon by Uke. If we take Kihonwazatsuki, the Uke's strike must include asocial degrees of penetration. So asocial violence, degrees of penetration. Physiologically, this is achieved by spinal displacement. Uke is not standing on the outside and trying to count coup with their fist on Nage's person, but Uke is penetrating to such a degree that Nage cannot stand where Nage was standing at the time the punch was thrown, because Uke is standing there now. It is prescribed, and Uke must do it. In Jiwaza, and Uke can decide 
their degree of penetration. To the point, even, where they will not penetrate at all. This penetration often makes it difficult to keep Uke's center moving forward or traversing sagittally across the mat. Under those cases, Uke can stop their center. With the stop center, Uke can turn their center in place, making a shorter radius circle inside Naga's circular movement. Whenever I feel that, in Jiyuwaza, where my interest is not to do a particular technique, but to address a particular situation, a particular context, it immediately feels like a counter, because it is. Because Uke has complete control of their cross-lateral side. And in order to maintain tactical soundness, you have to do something else. The good uke who is doing jiwaza will actually use that cross-lateral side. They won't sit there, stand there in place and wait for you to give them the dressage cue to now throw yourself over whatever I'm using as your cue. In Jiwaza, the uke does not have to stand still, does not have to take ukemi. So if they have balance and they have entire control of their cross-lateral side, they, can, they should and will continue to use it martially. And you will have to do something else. Secondly comes from personal experience. There is no doubt that fall is beautiful. There, it is, it is. It is graceful. The garment of the hakama accents its beauty. It can be breathtaking to observe. It looks beautiful in photographs. We see our advanced senpai practicing it. We compare it to our own crashes. We admire it. We are drawn to it. We want to learn it. Everyone's doing it. It's amplified and accelerated through the Federation tools of rank and title and the prestige of being Sensei Zuke. We are drawn to it. And early on, I was drawn to it. 
And there was a video published that taught you how to do it. And I would watch that video just like people today watch YouTube because there's tons of videos on it. But back then there was one video, it was VHS. And there were sequences you followed and it took you from point A to point D. And near the cusp of being able to achieve it most of the time, that is when I entered an apprenticeship with my teacher. And when I got there, I saw one of the deshi that, were, that was in the video. And this Aikidoka, for me, was almost like a celebrity. Wow, you were in the video. Wow. Man, that's really hard. I've really been working on it a long time, and you, you just made it look so easy. I was hoping to gain further insight. What am I leaving out? What am I not doing? Well, to my surprise, this deshi said, almost whispering, don't try that here. It'll only get you killed. I was shocked. And it was through that exposure to that teacher who always had your balance, always kept you moving, that I realized that any attempt to set one's body up for that fall was to disharmonize the yin and yang requirement of the ukemi, causing you to clash against that teacher's nagewaza. And like with all conflicts, made things hurt worse. So this idea of evolution runs through our modernity and some of us can barely think outside of it. And the idea that I'm proposing here is one of context. Meaning, there is a rationality, a reason, a sense to O Sensei's mysticism. And our job as moderns is to figure out the context in which it made sense.
if we outright dismiss it as woo-woo, as a less evolved way of being or thinking, we will not take the time to discover the context. And the same will be true even if we are in favor, a supporter of his mystical experience. We will simply take his teachings and put them in our own modern context, but with a positive spin. And there, they can make no sense because they were not ever meant to function in that context. So this may seem like a deviation from the series up till now on Osensei's mysticism, but it's not. We have to look at how even those who are pro or appear to be pro-mystic can also lead us astray. And as I said, this strain usually takes the form of things being made or understood to exist more externally, more superficially, not at the core of our own beingness, which is where the experience and the insight both begins and ends. I'll give you a quick example, one we've been talking about, yin and yang. In the academy, when you study yin and yang, you have the usual modern prioritization on thought and language. So people will look at the kanji. They'll consider advanced historiography if they go past the modern kanji and look at ancient kanji. And they look at it and they see, ah, oh, there is a character for mountain and a character for light or the sun and one for shade. But as good moderns, they don't look in, they look out. 
So they say, ah, these seem to be derived from what is now China. We're going to call these Chinese concepts. Some better historians will go, well, we can't really call them Chinese because there wasn't a China at the time. Oh, never mind. Let's just keep going. What, do you, what were you trying to say? Oh, well, the cultures that live there at the time we have textual evidence of these concepts existing were agricultural. Where do you grow crops? Well, you're going to grow them in the valleys. And so you get early understandings of yin and yang as, as a modern wood who wants an external perspective. Eventually you raise the question of origins. It has to come up because time is made linear. And they go, well, there were these farmers and they're observing the light from the sun crossing over the valley. So on one side at one time of the day, one part of the valley on the mountain face is in the sun. And another part, and that same part of the day, the other side is in darkness. But as the sun travels, they switch sides. And it all seems to make sense. And it satisfies the modern chronological sequence of beginning, middle, and end. But nowhere in the observation can you see the Tao. The proposed idea that it's just farmers looking up, they see this. It's important to farmers to understand night and day and the cycles of the season. And there's this kind of practicality to it then that motivates everything to go further. But you could stare at a valley all day long and you will never come up with the concept of Tao. You will never come up with the concept of a singular potentiality that gives rise to yin and yang simply by watching the sun travel across a valley. There's another problem. And to be sure, we don't know. We don't know. But these are problems by which we can free ourselves a little bit to think outside the box that is being handed to us. Farmers do not develop abstract modes of thinking. This is something that remains to this day. Workers work 
contemplative modes of thought require time and a lack of concern for immediate concerns. Probably if there was a farmer's son who started saying, Listen, Dad, as the sun goes down on this side, the sun is up on the other side. And this explains that things are in transition and are in harmony with, Hey, son, shut up and plant the damn rice. It's always been like that. Even today, if you look at Aikido demographics, let's just stay with my country, the United States. This is not a blue collar beneath the poverty line activity. The idea of care of thyself is in many ways a privileged idea. It has always been. If you take ancient India's religious frameworks and the stages of life, it's not until you already had your childhood, your education, your parenthood, your career, okay, now go off and find out who and what you are. Look at your own life as an Aikido practitioner. If you have kids and they're all different ages, you probably have three schools to get them all to, plus your job, plus dinner has to be made, houses have to be cleaned, deadlines at work. Within the daily grind, of those moments. Truthfully, how honestly are you contemplating the nature of the universe? Jump over to Thomas Burton, Thomas the Kempis, Meister Eckhart, what do you always see? The same caveat. Your proximity to God is proportionate to your distance from the world. So these kind of cosmological insights They're not made by farmers. 
There's other people who hang out on the mountains. They've always hung out there. And there's plenty of textual evidence in Chinese history that says they were there. The contemplatives, the anchorites, the ascetics. And what were they doing following Merton, Thomas Akempis, Meister Eckhart? They were leaving the world and going up into the mountains. In early Chinese history, and even to this day, in terms of East Asian religiosity, and I spoke about it, works through a principle of concentric truth. The whole idea of yin and yang posits that there is an order to the universe. An order implies consistency. And pre-modern thought, including East Asian thought, and including Osensei's thought, made use of a principle of concentric truth. It wasn't only the case that what was true over there on the West was true over here in the East, but like Russian nesting dolls, that truth would repeat itself both along microcosmic and macrocosmic levels. And there is only one place that a human being can observe something and simultaneously experience both dichotomy, duality, and communion or singularity. And that is within him or herself, in the mind, in the spirit, in the heart-mind. This is the ultimate origin of yin and yang philosophy. An application. It's venturing out is not possible without this interior positioning. And this is how O Sensei's experience and his art must be understood. If we take, for example, the concept of Aiki, let us define it, define it many ways here. 
harmony, communion, oneness. Non-conflictual, non-antagonistic, neither pushing nor pulling. At one level, yes, like a rushing nesting doll, the larger ones on the outside. This will manifest itself by allowing Uke's movement to occur and to organizing one's posture, biomechanics, inertial patterns, etc. in such a way That Uke's movement is related to without contestation. But inside that very process is supposed to be repeated by the very same means And if you open those outer Russian nesting dolls, you see the same thing inside. And the truth works like this. When Uke comes in, even if I can appear to be doing it externally, If inside me, in my deepest spiritual self or emotional self or psychological self, whatever you want to call all of that, that is us, but is not matter, not material. If that aspect of myself sees Uke as other, I will by default manifest as self. And there will be a dichotomy of other and self. And there can be no communion. There can be no Aiki. What you're seeing outside, externally, at the level of matter, of material, of blood and bone and flesh, will either be an outright observable conflict, or one made so small that only another master, a person capable of doing it internally, can see as not being Aiki.
this internalization and this prioritization of the internalization is the only way one can understand O-sensei. This is my opinion. But we see many, many attempts to understand him externally. Now again, one should know this, these attempts to understand the mystic experience externally is not something peculiar to O-sensei. This is a historical and sociological phenomenon that has been repeated over and over again. How do you go from a person sitting under a tree to these elaborate rituals and lists and countless texts if this were not true? How do we go from a poverty, an external poverty, to a message of love and inclusion and acceptance, to cathedrals of gold, if this was not true. It is this phenomena that happens, but our unconsciousness of it and our unconscious participation in it that has given birth, even on the accepting sides, to gross misunderstandings of what O-sensei was doing and talking about. One very common one is the idea that the art evolved externally. Again, for us moderns, that makes sense. We're, of course we're going to talk like that. We have hook, line, and sinker bought the concept of evolution. So when we look at O-sensei's art, it's talked about in terms of an evolution. We don't have his mysticism. We don't understand his mysticism as good moderns. And as good academics and priests, we look to external things and we understand those external things as evolutionary. And if anybody is going to tackle 
O-sensei's message, you have to get past the denouncers and the advocates. So a very common theme is, look, there are these Japanese martial arts. They were all battlefield arts. They were all about killing. They were all about conflict and contest. And then O-sensei, he saw the horrors of the war. He had an enlightenment experience. And he changed Aikido from what he was doing before and from what other martial arts do. And this is all bullshit. And you can tell it's from a priestly class because anybody who's ever had an experience knows life just goes on. It's only the person who hasn't had a mystical experience or has only had one that waits for this special thing to happen that's going to radically change who they are and how they experience the world. It's kind of like sex. When you don't have it, it's too super special. You have enough of it. It's like, please. I had a friend. He was a photographer. He was very excited because he became an assistant for uh, Playboy. He was getting a good salary and good experience. Then he tells me one day, who is actually a deshi, I quit. What did you quit that job for? It's going to set you up. Your future's there. It, it was ruining sexuality for me because it was normalizing it. <laughs> what do you mean? I was seeing too many naked women. It started to mean nothing. There's a great book. I'm, I'll post it in the, in the show notes. I believe it's called... After awakening the laundry. <laughs> because you may have your breath taken away and your pulse slowed to nothing. And a huge weight pressed against you and you can't move. And there may be claws digging into you or light In a sense of traveling without traveling. But it all stops. And you're going to have to eat. And sleep. And shit. If you read the historical record... Novices are warned constantly, hey, 
Don't make a big deal out of the experience. If you make a big deal out of the experience, you're doing it wrong. You're not understanding things. But priestly class make a big deal out of it because they don't have one. And by the profundity of the experience, they end up able to generate the political discourse and utilization of the founder. The founder represents through that experience an eruption of genius, a break in the historical record wherein he or she is spontaneously generated within a vacuum separate from their social context. With the eruption of genius becomes the possibility of radical departure. This is obviously a political tool, but people who invest in it, it is very important for them not to see it. So they are given incentives not to see it. These take the form of material capital, cultural capital, symbolic capital. Hey, will you participate in our birth of the founder polemics here? Yes, you will. Then here is a rank and here is the title and go ahead and spread the good news and get other people to not talk about or question our use of genius and spontaneous eruption in disconnecting the historical record. But with this and this misunderstanding of the mystical experience, you have this process of externalization, which is the problem we're addressing in this episode. Meaning, it's not that O Sensei had internally gained insight and skill in reconciling yin and yang. in reconciling the subject-object dichotomy or in dismantling the same other or the other self-conflict model, is that externally he came up with techniques that do it for you. It reminds me of the taser in law enforcement. A lot of times you hear the public talk about non-lethal weapons. This is how Aikido is often talked about. Non-lethal. 
and then the jump is to nonviolent. And so the art is described for many people as being non-lethal, non-violent. In law enforcement, the taser is denoted as less lethal. And it's certainly not considered non-violent. This not only recognizes that there can be a risk of death in the use of a taser, And there's ownership over the fact that it is an act of violence. There's a philosophical truth that is being held up there. I can be violent with a pillow. Maybe you remember those times when you were kids and you had pillow fights and they were so much fun and no one was getting hurt. Then someone bigger than you comes in with that pillow and just knocks you out. I remember early conversations where people were saying, Aikido is nonviolent because the joint manipulations go in the natural movement of the joints. Not true which is why other arts utilize them without making the claim that they are nonviolent and non-injurious. In our penal code section, throwing someone through case law is considered or can be considered felony battery or even assault with a deadly weapon. Hitting them, just a battery, misdemeanor. But for many Aikido people, a temi is a sign of violence, but throwing them is not. One of the earlier cases I had and it's quite common. Other law enforcement officers you know can tell you about this, or you might even know someone who had this happen to them, or they committed it. Looked like it was going to be a simple case of fisticuffs when Joe and Larry got in an argument in front of the gas station. Joe punches Larry. Larry goes unconscious. No mark on his face. No dislocation of his jaw, no inflammation, but he goes unconscious, hits the ground, lands on the back of his head, and is now a vegetable. With but a slip of the tongue in the interview, those kind of cases can turn into attempted murder cases. In short, 
You can't hit people with a planet and call it nonviolent. No doubt, again, there is something unique to O-sensei. There is an eruption, but it is the same mystical eruption that pops itself up every once in a while in human history. But it's an internal source. An internal point of origin. Not an external one. So I received a email to the podcast. And I'm hoping that what has been said now is a preface to what I'm going to give him in response. So here is his note to me. Dear Sensei, I really enjoy your podcast and your videos. I've been practicing Japanese Jiu-Jitsu for a little over two years now and practiced Aikido for most of a year over a decade ago. Your observations and teachings as a supplement to those of my own Hanshi have helped me approach my training with more purpose and meaning. Thank you. I wonder if you could discuss the origin myth or fictions between Aikido, Jiu-Jitsu, and Daitoryu on a future podcast. I've especially enjoyed your talks on Ueshiba Sensei's Aikido. I agree with you. I ended up writing him and asking for more clarification because this really is an honor. There's no small thing to bring to another person your questions, your struggles, your problems. It's quite an intimate act. So I wanted to make sure I understood what he was requesting of me. I asked for clarification and he answered, you mentioned one that I found myself believing, that Aikido is a nonviolent form of Daitoryu and that Ueshiba Sensei somehow cleansed Daitoryu. I can see that there are massive intersections between the three arts. From a less informed viewpoint, it seems that Daitoryu is the framework for Aikido and Japanese Jiu-Jitsu. At least that's the narrative. Thank you for your time. I'm going to take out, I'm going to take off the table Jiu-Jitsu. Because it is a term still that is being defined. But his comment that Aikido is a kind of cleaned up Daitoryu is very relevant to this discussion on O-sensei's mysticism. And it's a very easily solved 
problem. I mean, the information is out there. This narrative of the mystical experience and the post-war cleansing of Daitoryu to give birth to Aikido is just wrong. So again, I'm going to point us to the work by Christopher Lee, who has stepped up and continued the work by Stanley Prannon, the original editor and founder of Aikido Journal. who began this uncovering or this ex the exposing of the revis revisionist history of Osensei's Aikido, which made use of this myth, and I mean myth in the derogatory sense of the word, which made use of this political fiction, let's be specific, in order to generate something that really had nothing to do with O-sensei, his art, or his experience. So I'm going to post for the listener two things. The link to the article... Um, put together by Christopher Lee, the blog entry. So you can read it for yourself. In that link, you will see pictures that will provide more evidence of the fact that there was no cleansing of Aikido or of Daitoryu that brought about the formation of Aikido, which supports my position that O-sensei's cleansing, if we're going to use that word, or O-sensei's purification was an internal one, one that was in line with ancient and, of course, pre-modern technologies of the self, particular to East Asia. So you'll see pictures there, and Christopher Lee is always transparent and open enough where he provides links to the manuals that are being mentioned here. I believe they're in two languages, English and in Japanese, so you can have the original text for you for those who are uh, operating at that level of historical inquiry. I'll also post a link that uh, of a video. It was actually one of the first real concrete uh, mass-produced critiques of the Aikido political fiction where they compared O-sensei's pre-war Aikido to O-sensei's post-war Aikido. I've noticed now that that video is now on Christopher Lee's uh, YouTube channel. So I'm just going to post that link there. Both of these things will answer my our listener's question and then further my point, which is 
if there wasn't this external evolution, what was the source of the uniqueness? So the title of this article is Budo Moritaka Ueshiba's 1938 Technical Manual. I've edited out some of the uh, words and links that Christopher Lee uses to get you to those uh, aforementioned manuals that you can download yourself, just to make it a little bit more readable for the podcast. First, there was Budo Renchu. That's the title of one of these manuals in, in 1933. So this is before World War II. Published in English under the name Budo Training in Aikido, which was given to select students at Moritaka Ueshiba's pre-war Kobukan Dojo as a teaching license. So for those who don't know, um, Morihei Ueshiba, O-sensei, was given the name um, by his teacher, his religious or spiritual teacher, Moritaka. And this is still something that's done in Japanese religiosity, in East Asian religiosity. When you enter into a particular tradition, uh, you kind of make a break with your um, pre-entering self, again, mimicking or echoing um, Thomas the Kempis, Meister Eckhart, Thomas Merton, the idea that you need to leave the world in order to discover these truths. So you, uh, in times past, your clothes were taken from you, your heads were shaved, or you had a different hairstyle because hairstyles are a worldly thing, um, and you were given a different name. So he, once he was given that name, he would periodically sign his name uh, with that new religious name, and that name is Moritaku. Moritaka. So Moritaka Ueshiba is Morihei Ueshiba is O-sensei. And then the concept of a teaching license. So uh, before you had the Don ranking system, which was uh, started or made popular with the founder of Judo, not O-sensei or the Aikikai for those who don't know. And also uh, those who don't know the the Don ranking system was a kind of um, Western importation that um, Kano, the founder of Juno, Judo, uh, was witnessing in other uh, Western activities such as the Boy Scouts and muscular Christianity. Um, so it was not a Japanese thing. What did what they did prior to that was some sort of licensing or whereby you were given or afforded the right to teach and you were that right or that license was um, either accompanied by or symbolized by the giving of a teaching manual, a scroll, a book that included the totality of or a large section or a deeper section of the technical lexicon of that art. So in 1933, there was a book. It was called Budo Denshu, and O-sensei used it as a teaching license. So um, this work includes pictures and techniques hand-drawn by Takako Kunigoshi 
and explanatory texts assembled and edited primarily by Kenji Tomiki. And Tomiki here is the uh, founder of one of the main lineages of Aikido, and he had a history of being one of the judo founder's student at one time. At the time of, the, of its publication and through the end of World War II, so at, in 1933, we know this book existed. We know it was associated with O-sensei, and he valued it enough to use it as a teaching license. And it was in existence all the way to the end of World War II. Aikido founder Morihei Ueshiba used the name Moritaka, a name he received through his relationship with Onisaburo Deguchi. So that is just repeating what I explained in the first paragraph. From the word, uh, we don't need that. Okay. In 1954, Morihei Ueshiba published Aikido Makinoichi, edited by Nidai Doshu Kishomaru. Okay, so in 1954, this is well after the end of World War II, there is another book. It goes by a different title. Aikido Maki no Ichi, and this one was edited by Kishomaru, his son. This book duplicated many of the pictures and most of the text of the earlier 1933 manual Budo Renshu. All right, and this is why you might want to follow that link because you're going to see the pictures there. If I remember um, Christopher Lee's page. Accurately, I'm sorry about this, but this episode was planned long before the um, call of duty took me away. Um, so I haven't seen the page in a while. Um, if I remember correctly, there's pictures from the 33 manual and pictures from the 54 manual, and they are the same pictures, and the word descriptions are the same, meaning there's no change. There's no evolution that's happening. In between the above two works, in 1938, Morihei Ueshiba pri privately published another book, a technical manual called Budo. This one was published for Prince Kaya Tsunenori, who was once a student of his at the time. The manual was rediscovered entirely by accident in 1981 when Aikido Journal editor Stanley Prandon was shown a copy during the course of conducting an interview. So again, as I mentioned earlier, before I started reading this, Stanley Prandon was already on the case, so to speak, and he was tracking this stuff down. And so another place you might want to read uh, for um, evidence that disputes the political fiction of O-sensei's uh, post-war awakening and the purification of Daito-ryu technical lexicon definitely start reading everything that Stanley Prandon was producing at Aikido Journal. Christopher Lee continues, Like Budo Denshu, so that's the first manual in 1933, Budo, the manual, the hidden, or the of late discovered 1938 manual, was often distributed to students as a licensing document. On the last page of Budo, displayed above, so go to the link to see these pictures. We can see that this copy was issued by Moritaka Ueshiba in 1938 as a licensing document. The text on the right confirms that this document certifies the transmission of Ogi no Koto, Inner Mysteries. As I said, sometimes these texts are, they provide through text, through, through um, pictures and word descriptions, 
um, what are considered to be deeper versions or deeper insights into the techniques that the student might have been shown up till now, hence their teaching licenses. This may likely be an imitation of the Daitoryu Hiden Oginokoto scrolls that Ush Morihei Ueshiba both received from his instructor Takeda and distributed to students such as Tomiki and Mochizuki. In comparing these three volumes, you will see that the techniques from Budo Denshu carry through to Budo, so from 1933 to 1938, and then carry through to Aikido Maki no Ichi, 1954. If you chance to examine and compare the text of the three volumes, which give very detailed and complete explanations of O-sensei's technical principles, you will find something similar. The textual explanations are consistent and continuous across all three volumes. Again, Volume 1, 1933, Volume 2, 1938, and Volume 3, 1954. Again, pre-war and post-war. This is significant because it shows that what Morihei Ueshiba was teaching in 1954 was the same as what he was teaching in 1933 and in 1938. It shows that five years after he told Morihei Saito in Iwama in 1949 that he had completed Aikido. He was still distributing the same material containing the same explanations and the same techniques that had given his students that he had given his students in 1933 when they were firmly students of Daitoryu Aikijujitsu. Okay, so that's important, and I imagine there's some people who don't realize that the word Aikido, I believe, was coined in 1942 by, by, not by Morihei Ueshiba, but some, but by somebody who was looking for a kind of nomenclature, homogeneity, between words like uh, judo, kendo, and then aikido. Um, what was Osensei calling his art in 1933 when he was issuing Budo, that book, as a licensing manual? He was calling it Daitodyu Aikijujitsu. And since the manual was the same in 1954, the techniques are still Daitodyu Aikijujitsu, though the name is different in 1954. Meaning, there is no external variation, not of a technical kind, and that we would be wrong to think that all we had to do as followers of O-sensei or as practitioners of O-sensei's art is to do his techniques as if they were some sort of ready-made, non-lethal, non-violent weapon that we could use. That instead we should realize that there is no non-violence external to who and what we are, that it is an internal state of being that precedes an external technique or any application of any martial art or of words or of thoughts or of how we live, how we relate to others. Continuing, 
Further, we have Morihei Saito repeated testimony that the founder taught him in Iwama in the 1960s. So here we're going 14, uh, 16 years more past um, that last manual in 1954. So in the 1960, most closely resembled what appears in the publication Budo uh, from 1938. So this is now I'm going to read a quote from Stanley Prennan, who, as I said, was on this case and really ran out of time. He um, passed away before he could finish this work. Um, but anybody could really see the writing on the wall if you were following Stanley. Um, my own, just from my own as a historian, I could tell right from the beginning that um, the production of the founder as a genius and the use of the awakening experience um, there's just no way that was right. Uh, so I was really happy to see that uh, Stanley Prannon was uncovering things uh, with documents. So from Stanley Prannon, quote, I once doubted that Saito-sensei's methods were closely rooted in O-sensei's teachings because of the apparent difference in their execution of techniques. I based myself on the founder's demonstrations in the films from his final years where he performed very few techniques, many of them involving little contact with Izuke. On the other hand, Saito-sensei's Aikido was precise, martial, technically diverse. However, I was forced to reevaluate my opinion on this key point following the discovery of O-sensei's 1938 technical manual, Budo, where photos of several key basic techniques are virtually identical to the Aikido forms taught by Saito-sensei in Iwama. My later exposure to, to the more than 1,000 photos from the Noma Dojo series of 1935 reinforced this change in my thinking. Uh, Christopher Lee goes on. There is another important person, uh, Takuma Hisa, who had a chance to compare the teachings of his two instructors, Daito Ryu Chukunoso Sokaku Takeda and uh, Morihei Ueshiba. So Hisa trained with both Takeda and Ueshiba. And Hisa said the following. Takeda's instruction gave, gave Hisa... Let me make sure that Hisa's quoting it. No, I'm sorry. This looks like it's quoted about Hisa by uh, Navy Admiral Isamu Takeshita. So again, you can go to that link and follow it, and you'll get the right idea here. So commenting on Hisa's martial art exposure to both teachers, Takeda's instruction gave Hisa the chance to compare the techniques that he had been taught from the previous three years, 1933 to 1936, by Ueshiba, with those taught by Takeda. So... First, Hisa trained with Uesh with Osensei in 1933. That is the time when that first book was being given out, Budo Renshu, as a teaching teaching license. This is also the time when Osensei was firmly calling his art Daitudu Aikijujutsu, and he compared those with Takeda. His conclusion was that they were the same, meaning that Ueshiba had not by 
that time significantly modified or evolved what he had been taught by Takeda. In later years, Hisama was adamant about Ueshiba and Takeda's techniques being identical. Skipping forward. The explanations of principle and technique showing... This is Christopher Lee continuing... The explanations of principle and technique showing that Hisa learned in 1933 via Budo Renshu are repeated in 1938 Budo, that Budo manual, which Morihei Saito testified was what Morihei Ueshiba was teaching Iwama in the 1950s and 1960s. This is supported by the fact that the identical explanations and techniques appear in 1954, Aikido Makino Ichi, in a volume distributed by Moruheo Ishiba long after the war. Christopher Lee concludes, All of this lends further support to the argument that the radical phase change to the technical core of Aikido that is so commonly accepted to have occurred after the war never happened. Or perhaps it happened, but not at the behest of Moruheo Ishiba. Okay, now I don't know what Christopher Lee means by that last phrase, but my historical analysis will say, oh, indeed, there has been a movement away from O-sensei's Aikido. Uh, it is not only technical, it is obviously spiritual, and also in terms of application, methodology, and pedagogy, it has radically departed from his Aikido. Um, and I'm going to say as... A historian, the lo the likely culprit is those who manufactured the political fiction in the first place. I had uh, it's a very common uh, instruction in graduate school when you're doing history: follow the money. So follow the money. So, dear listener, I hope that answers your question. And I hope for those um, who didn't have that question but are following along on this uh, discussion on O-sensei's mysticism that we created a little leeway in ourselves that we are going to have to look at something deeper than just O-sensei's external movements or Aikido's technical uh, lexicon. That That is not what O-sensei was doing, that we understand our propensity to do the latter, both as moderns and just both as members of a priestly or academic class that we will do this. And again, the sole reason for this archaeology is so that we can gain within us the necessary freedom to enter into another age's context so that we can see how and why what the founder was saying actually made sense. That it's not woo-woo. It's not a, any devolved de way of thinking. But it's also not external exercise 
that it's something deeper, deep within us, something timeless, something ancient, and something that, and I'll be making this case, if we as a people do not figure out, we will suffer greatly from what O Sensei discovered or experienced or realized can be understood as a timeless wellness system. What is different about our age is not a lack of need for this wellness. We have the same need. But what is different about our age is that the unwellness that we face is so amplified and accelerated by so many systems in our time that we cannot afford this delay. This concludes this episode of Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com, S-E-N-S-H-I-N, C-E-N-T-E-R dot com or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.